0: You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 7th of February 2023 on Monocle 24. The world scrambles to help Turkey and to a somewhat lesser extent, Syria. Will the Chinese spy balloon puncture relations with the United States or is it all a lot of hot air? And what should a former leader do with their time, especially a leader as former as Liz Truss? I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests Julie Norman and Shelby Wilder will discuss all the day's big stories and we'll hear from our Washington DC correspondent Chris Chomack ahead of US President Joe Biden's second State of the Union speech. Stay tuned. All that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller and I'm joined today by Julie Norman, Associate Professor in Politics and International Relations and Co-Director of the UCL Centre on US Politics at UCL and by the journalist and documentary filmmaker Shelby Wilder. Hello to you both.
1: Good, Good
0: evening, um, Shelby. We will start with you because it is your first time on the daily, and so accordingly, we are making you wear the owl costume that is <laughs> is, is traditional in these circumstances. So obviously, you can take the head off uh, so people people can hear you. We, all jokes aside, we do actually have an owl costume here in the building. People who I have, would love to put it on um, <laughs> next time you're in, we may well hold you to that. Though I think I'm not even <laughs> sure it fits through that door. We may have deviated from the point here somewhat, which was to introduce you to our listeners. Basically, how did you get here? What what journey led you to the seat in which you are now sitting?
2: Well, I'm wondering who counselled that I got lucky enough to be <laughs> in this seat. Um, thank you for the introduction. I am a freelance journalist and filmmaker, and I've been covering the invasion in Ukraine since last year. I spent four months in the country last year writing, reporting and shooting short documentaries. One of my articles was published with Monocle in the fall and I am now going back to Kyiv in the coming days.
0: Uh, and Julie, you usually seem to turn up here having been somewhere which makes us enraged with envy. Um, <laughs> where was it this time?
3: Well, it was the Kurdish region of Iraq. So I hope you are all just shaking with envy right I, now. I, I, I'm, um, I'm seething. But I, I, I do recommend it. But yes, I was there for a project working uh, with young people who are trying to improve their communities in all different parts of Iraq. So it was just absolutely inspiring group of youth. And uh, yeah, and Ur- Kurdish uh, Iraq really is a beautiful area. So I, I do recommend it.
0: Do, if you will, a brief travel advertisement for it. Where did you fly to and what can you see once you get
3: there? <laughs> well, we were based in Erbil and there was one big thing to see in Erbil and like the only thing called the citadel, which is this big, beautiful, mm-hmm. um, old uh, citadel in the middle of the city. So that's that's pretty much the centre of things. But there's uh, also a shopping mall with statues of important women from Kurdish-Iraqi history, which I thought was pretty interesting. And, uh, and those are the, pretty much the two things to see.
0: And a big hello to our many listeners in Erbil. Uh, we will start the programme proper with rather more sombre news. This is the earthquake which struck Turkey and Syria in the early hours of Monday. More than 6,300 people at the latest count are now known to have died. Multiples of that are injured and the cost in damage to homes and businesses is barely imaginable. Turkey and Syria both clearly need all the help they can get and it is something that there is no shortage of it. Dozens of countries, supranational entities and NGOs are scrambling to dispatch personnel, equipment, supplies and money, including one or two not usually noted for a charitable view of the affected countries. Greece was among the first to help Turkey, and Israel has offered to send aid to Syria. Um, Shelby, first of all, we talked about this yesterday on the Daily with uh, the Norwegian Refugee Council, but it's going to be an awful lot harder to help Syria here, isn't it? Turkey, for all its its foibles and dysfunctions, is a, a broadly operable state. It does have emergency services and processes, and it hasn't been at war for 10 years.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that, you know, the US has said it will only deliver aid through NGOs and that it's not going to engage with the Syrian government. And that's because Bashar al-Assad's regime, as we know, has brutalized its own people with the country being ravaged by a horrific civil war over the last 12 years now, killing hundreds of thousands of people. And to make matters worse, the area that's been hit the hardest in Syria in northwest Syria is controlled by anti regime forces. Mm. So it seems like the government, the Syrian government is not going to be very motivated to do much in order to help. And ultimately, the Syrian government has to allow aid to reach these regions um, without restriction and really without playing politics in regards to the aid.
0: Because the, the curious subplot here, Julie, and it's, it's hard to know exactly what is going on. Israel has offered to send assistance to Syria. Al Jazeera, for one, is reporting that Syria has rather laughed this off. But assuming Israel is being entirely serious about this, and honestly, I cannot imagine why Benjamin Netanyahu would have said it if he wasn't, um, is it a bit petty in circumstances like this to question where the aid is coming from? This is something Israel has run up against once or twice before. There's been occasions on which both Pakistan and Sri Lanka uh, declined assistance from Israel after a natural disaster.
3: Yeah, it's an interesting question. And again, it's not the first time we've seen it. I mean, in my uh, in my assessment in these kinds of things, when it's a humanitarian crisis that we've talked about before, a natural disaster that doesn't have any politics behind it. I mean, it is natural for a state like Israel to still offer the aid. And I think it's, you know, usually in uh, in the best interest of the the affected state to still still take that aid. But we often will see this at least uh, rhetorical kind of um, stiff arming to that. Often, sometimes that aid goes through a little bit more, um, uh, less publicly maybe then, than some of the other aid that's uh, kind of bandied about. But, um, but at the end of the day, it does raise some tough questions for those countries, but they're going to need all the help they can get in this kind of situation.
0: It, it is curious, uh, Shelby, and I, I it still sticks in my head years ago, uh, reading an editorial in Haaretz around the time of the uh, tsunami in Southeast Asia. So this is going back 15, 16, 17 years, um, making the point that if some similar natural disaster was to engulf, for example, Gaza, um, would Israel come to the aid of the Palestinians in Gaza? And the question, or that it answered its own question said so yes, of course we would. We, w- we would move heaven and earth to do everything everything we could to help. So why don't we just help? Um, it, it, it is really strange that that nation states seem to respond differently to natural disasters than they do to, um, I guess more deliberately caused disasters.
2: Yes, I mean, I I think in this case, just adding to what you had said, Julie, it's significant because uh, in regards to uh, Syria and Israel, you know, these two countries have been in a perpetual state of war since 1948. And I would think that with a natural disaster, um, people believe that it could happen to anyone at any time. Of course, it's different where you are in the world, but perhaps that is why we see everyone coming together and mobilising. But at the same time, You know, these two nations do not have diplomatic relations. Uh, Syria has never recognized Israel's sovereignty, and Israel views Syria to be a hostile state. Um, So it's ultimately better than nothing um, in regards to these two old foes and neighbors.
0: But, Julie, is there, I mean, is this, I mean, it is obviously idle to be looking in the cloud for a silver lining at this point, but is there any prospect of? wider rapprochements growing out of something like this and I, I was looking for examples which do seem to paint a fairly uh, gloomy prognosis uh, in, in 2003 dreadful earthquake uh, in Iran and the United States sent actual military transport planes obviously with Iran's permission containing supplies medicines um, and a rescue team and that that was when you know the United States regarded Iran as a component of the axis of evil Iran still very much and still very much does regards the United States as the great Satan. Um, Rather depressingly, nothing much more came of that.
3: That's right. And I think realistically, we uh, we need to expect that this will probably be rather short-lived as well. You know, as Shelby said, we're talking about conflicts that have been going on for, for decades, more than half a century now. So that's not to say that they're not important and I think should be recognized for, for what they are. But um, but I feel like the, the weight of the conflict around this is usually something that comes right back to the surface once the the crisis that we're dealing with kind of stabilizes a bit. So it's, um, it's a sad fact, but I think it's one that we'll expect.
0: Well, and, and Shelby, a final thought on this. And obviously this right now is very far from the priorities of the Turkish government, as indeed it should be. But uh, among the countries which are offering assistance to Turkey are Sweden and Finland. Um, Is that going to make Turkey's position more difficult if they want to keep being obstructive about Sweden and Finland joining NATO?
2: I mean, I I believe that they're going to take all the aid that they can get. One would hope so. Um, But at the same time, politically in regards to NATO, um, they have their own agenda with what uh, they're expecting to get from somewhere like Sweden. And uh, I think they have a bit of a hard line of what they uh, will tolerate. But in regards to this situation with the earthquake, I think Turkey is obviously going to get this fast delivery of aid and help as is happening right now. And sadly, we're going to see Syria... Uh, having a much more difficult time. And the question is, will they be able to really recover from this?
0: Well, we will be returning to this specific issue in this week's Foreign Desk Explainer, which goes live tomorrow, and we will, of course, be following developments in Turkey and Syria uh, as long as this story lasts. But let's now look at the ramifications of Saturday's incident, in which a pilot from the U.S. Air Force's 1st Fighter Wing decisively dispelled any doubt about the ability of the F 22 Raptor to hit an undefended, barely mobile target the size of a six story building in a clear sky. Efforts are continuing to salvage the wreckage of the Chinese spy balloon shot down off the Carolina coast, while on shore the political row rages about whether or not it was right to let the rogue dirigible drift across America beforehand, and the diplomatic bun throwing between Washington DC and Beijing continues. Um Julie, I don't think I'm alone in just frankly having found this whole thing enormously good fun. I, I, I think I think China should do it more often. It, it, it could become, or it become, it could become an annual event like the, like the, the burning of the big straw goat in Sweden. Um, but the official line, the administration in Washington, is floating, is that they chose to let it drift across the United States so they could surveil it. Uh, as it were, and then shoot the thing down once it was, you know, safely over water. Are are we buying that entirely?
3: (laughs) Floating being the operative word, right? (laughs) Yes. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think there were different reasons for this. I mean, one, I, I do think there was a legitimate concern with what if we hit this? We're actually not sure what... What this thing is made of, and what it can like pr- potentially do when it like
0: falls to the ground. I mean, this is true so, for 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 all that it was a balloon, I suspect if it landed on my house, I'd have noticed
3: yes, yes, and yeah. the the three bus worth um size of it or what have you. So I do think that was part of it. But I think more it was the intelligence interest here. It was like, look, we can we have this thing in our sights. We can track it all the way across the country, see how it's operating. We can completely shut down any kind of signals that it's getting while it's doing that. And then once we do a controlled hit on it, then we can actually, get the debris, unpack this thing, do some reverse technology, look at it and see what we have here. So I think from intelligence interest, it was probably the best move, but optically and politically um, obviously many many Americans from across the spectrum were like, how could you let this thing float all the way across the country for multiple days?
0: Well, the, the bit I really enjoyed, Shelby, was... Um All the bloviators on conservative media getting well into their stride about Joe Biden being weak and or treacherous uh, and taking action far too late only for it then to be revealed that this happened at least three times uh, under Donald Trump, who not only did nothing, uh, but didn't even tell anybody it was happening.
2: Yeah, and they've also f- spotted another balloon. I think it was over Costa Rica. They've seen another Chinese balloon ha- floating at the moment. Um, but yeah, I think with this, it's really the symbolism of seeing this Chinese craft drifting across America.
0: And that that is suboptimal. I will. I will. <laughs> grant.
2: And that it's going over uh, sensitive military sites as Biden is about to give his State of the Union address. It's a bit of a bummer in regards to timing uh, for him. It's sort of volatile, however you look at it. But yes, uh, Republicans were saying they didn't act soon enough and that um, it was compromising, again, sensitive information. And the video of it being shot down over the Carolinas you could hear a lot of kind of bro friday guys chanting usa <laughs> as they saw a fighter jet co- come into view on the videos on social media um, but it's definitely uh deflated relations May. with uh, with china
0: um <laughs> Was Blinken cancelling his trip a mistake, Julie? Because I would have thought that's exactly the moment at which you want to visit China because you've got something on them. Because China's embarrassed by this. They're they're not enjoying any of this. And I suspect they were actually probably relieved to be told that the Secretary of State wasn't coming.
3: Yeah, I I do think they were right to at least postpone that visit. I don't think politically Blinken could have have gone. And one way that, you know, obviously there's a way to show some uh, displeasure, disgruntlement is to, to kind of cancel the visit. So I do think they needed to do that. With that said, again, as you pointed out, the whole point of the visit was to try and make sure communication channels stay open, make sure uh, rogue incidents don't uh, escalate unnecessarily. So at the same time, there's kind of a teachable moment for why those kinds of relations are so important to maintain. So I do hope they get the follow-up visit, but um, I don't think he could have gone in that moment and just proceeded with business as usual.
0: Uh, Shelby, unsurprisingly, this has prompted an amount uh, of China bashing from both American politics and American media. Some states, Texas, Florida, among others, are now floating bans on the ownership of property by nationals, not just of China, but of what they deem hostile or potentially hostile powers, which might include Russia, Iran or North Korea. Um, I'm actually not sure what I think about this. If this is properly focused, if this is intended, for example, to forbid such things as actually happened, like a Chinese firm buying a large corn mill near an Air Force base in North Dakota. Isn't this actually fairly sensible? I'm not talking about targeting people of Chinese descent or, you know, Chinese nationals buying a house to live in because they live in the United States. But does the United States and perhaps other countries need to be a bit fussy about who is buying it?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you in this sense that I can understand uh, that example you referenced where they stopped um, a large development project that was supposed to be happening near a US military site, which for security reasons um, wasn't to go forward. But if they're to issue a sort of blanket ban altogether against Chinese nationals, not only is that unconstitutional, but it has anti-Asian sentiment in regards Mm. to Chinese uh, nationals buying and owning property in the U.S. What the uh, Republican members of Congress were trying to say now with with hoping to broaden this ban is that they were saying they wanted to stop um, Chinese uh, citizens and Chinese companies from buying up U.S. farmland. They said they wanted to try and protect U.S. agriculture and Mm -hmm. that industry. And then separately, they touched on the threat of it being a national security issue. But it, it's kind of a case-by-case basis, as you said, because um, a general ban is just not, yeah, doesn't, doesn't fly.
0: I mean, is there an argument, though, Julie, that, that most Americans, aside from getting massively up in arms about the spectacle of a balloon, are not taking the potential threat posed by china seriously enough this certainly is the view to trail an interview we will be broadcasting uh, eventually of at least one former cei cia rather chief of counterintelligence who i spoke to uh, earlier this afternoon um, that americans don't take this seriously enough and what struck me as among the many uh, richly amusing aspects of this farrago was that you have a country losing its mind about a single balloon, but this is a country in which somewhere around 90 million people have voluntarily downloaded TikTok onto their phones.
3: Yeah, and, and this is the thing. I mean, and this is, there was a lot of like pearl clutching, I think, with the US with this balloon, but one, you know, we're aware that China has satellites, all kinds of espionage kind of surveillance going on all the time. As you said, there's choices that people make in their day-to-day lives that enable some of their data to be going to China as well. And um, there's debates on whether TikTok should be monitored more or not. But it is it is the case that we can assume some data is going that direction. And uh, I, w- I was hoping to see some TikToks of the balloon. I thought that would I, have I, been the ultimate... I, um... I, I,
0: I would be disappointed if, if there weren't a yes, great many.
3: that's what I was hoping for. Um, but, I, but I think you're right with that. And I, and I do think this did bring it home for a lot of Americans that this isn't just a trade spat or something like that. This is There actually are security things that these countries are trying to um, figure out and are at each other about.
0: Well, let's stay in the United States because U.S. President Joe Biden faces Congress tonight for the second State of the Union speech of his presidency, but with Republicans now in control of the House of Representatives and large numbers of his fellow Americans still apparently convinced that the federal government is some sort of conspiracy against them personally. Even so, there is growing speculation that Biden will indeed run again for president in 2008. 2024. Monocle's Washington correspondent Chris Chermak now looks ahead to tonight's address. Madam Speaker, the President of the United States.
1: The last time that Joe Biden gave a State of the Union speech before Congress was exactly six days after Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Let each of us, if you're
0: able to stand, stand and send an unmistakable signal to the world.
1: Democrats were in control of both houses of Congress. The US was just emerging from COVID's latest variant. Let's use this moment to reset. So stop looking at COVID as a partisan dividing line. See it for what it is, a god-awful disease. And abortion was still a constitutional right. And Biden's popularity? Well, that was at about the same low point as now, but you get the idea. What a difference a year makes. If last year's State of the Union speech was about setting out the Democratic Party's agenda and putting America back on the right track, this year, with Congress divided, it's about proving he's already done exactly what he wanted to do and laying the groundwork for a 2024 re-election campaign if he decides to go for it. There is something of a disconnect here in the United States. Joe Biden has a number of legislative achievements under his belt in the past year, but the public doesn't really see it. Halfway through his presidency, Biden's approval rating sits around 41%. And a Washington Post poll found that 62% of the public believe Joe Biden has accomplished little since taking office. What's most interesting about the poll is that the public doesn't even see achievements in the things that he has accomplished. Sixty percent say Biden has not improved roads and bridges, for example, despite a record investment in exactly that. Our infrastructure is ranked 13th in the world. We won't be able to compete for the jobs of the 21st century if we don't fix it. That's why it was so
0: important to pass the bipartisan infrastructure law. And I thank my Republican friends.
1: That kind of polling suggests this isn't really about Joe Biden and the Democrats at all. It's about general trust in government, and the state of trust in our union is low. And what's different about this moment is it's not just the state of trust in Congress. That's been low for decades now. It's the state of trust in federal agencies and the FBI, thanks in part to a campaign by Republicans to undermine them, and the state of trust in our Supreme Court, thanks largely to an abortion ruling that has left Democrats' confidence in this once-trusted institution in tatters. Basically, Americans have lost trust in just about all aspects of how Washington is run, with the possible exception of our military. But even if this is bigger than Joe Biden, since he ran on a platform of restoring trust and unity, the state of trust in our union should give him a pause. And there's a separate Washington Post poll out this week that will be causing Joe Biden and the White House even more concern a majority of Democrats would prefer to have a different standard-bearer than Joe Biden in 2024, while Americans of all political stripes especially roll their eyes at the idea of a Donald Trump-Joe Biden rematch. What's especially striking is that there's greater anger with Biden than Trump. 62% of Americans say they would be dissatisfied or angry if Biden were re-elected, 56% say the same about Donald Trump. The reality is that Americans are looking for new leaders, preferably ones who are under 80 years old. This also goes for Congress. A majority of Americans think the age of the average lawmaker is a problem and support age caps. But it's not just about seniority. Three quarters of Americans have consistently supported term limits for lawmakers, for the better part of the last decade. Something that might help take at least some of the partisanship out of lawmaking. One of the few areas where there is more confidence is on foreign policy. A majority of Americans still say the White House is doing enough or even too little to support Ukraine. Tonight, the president will also be taking a hard line on China in the aftermath of the balloon spying debacle. Expect bipartisan applause for that one, too. So, while we're not fans of the state of our own union, most Americans also see a dangerous world out there and probably don't want to live anywhere else. As Joe Biden faces Congress and the nation tonight, surely that should count for something. For Monocle, in Washington, I'm Chris Chermack.
0: Chris Chermack, who now apparently has Leonard Skinner as his backing band. Uh, thank you for that, Chris. Um, Julie, I think Chris outlines there very well the absolute impossibility of President Biden's situation. Because even if in his first two years in office, he had, I don't know, cured cancer or other known disease, brought permanent peace to the world, just generally fixed literally everything, he'd still be struggling to poll forty five percent, wouldn't he?
3: He would. I mean his approval rating has just stayed really stuck in that low forties. And he had some big wins this year. I mean, mm-hmm. just objectively, he had some good policy wins, um, you know, by by any standards. But as Chris said, you know, a lot of Americans either aren't aware of those wins or are just against anything that the Democrats and the federal government are kind of doing. And I think what's notable in some of the numbers that Chris was mentioning is you would expect most Republicans to uh, not really be approving of Biden's actions. But um, even with independents, he is still very low. And that's really that key demographic that makes a difference in U.S. elections these days. So if he's if he's not winning over that group, it's um, that that that's bodes not so well for
0: him looking ahead to 2024. Uh- Shelby, Biden's pitch when he came into this job—if we go back to his uh, inaugural address—was basically just to try and calm everybody the hell down. To quote him, he said, "We can join forces, stop the shouting, lower the temperature." How has that gone?
2: Oh goodness! I mean. You know... <laughs> I, I think America has become the most divided, at least I've seen in my lifetime, which is pretty scary. Um, I, I agree with you, Julie, that, I mean, Biden has managed to make some pretty big wins. I mean, I think that what we're going to hear from him in his address is boasting sort of about the, the job, uh, labor market being strong, the economy's resilience, some of his achievements. But um, I don't know. In America, I still think we're you know we're talking about right now uh, the insurrection and prosecuting people and still investigating this further. Like, I think many of us are very concerned about seeing this ugly Trump Biden rivalry rearing its head in regards mm. to 2024 and wondering if the nation is going to keep ripping itself apart at the seams over that.
0: Well, Chris does raise the well a big question facing Joe Biden. Giuliani is going to have to make a decision at some point about whether he will uh, put himself forward to be the Democratic nominee in 2024. Um, the obvious mark against him is that he is 107 years old, <laughs> uh, but he has demonstrated before that he can beat Donald Trump, who may also again be the Republican nominee. Um, is that the only calculation that he's? Making because it it strikes me at least that if Biden does say, "Okay, I'm not doing this," then the Democratic nomination it's on for young and old, isn't it? Because Vice President Kamala Harris is not the presumptive nominee in the way that the vice president usually is.
3: Yeah, no, that's exactly right. I mean, one, I think he's watching the Republican field. If Trump was going to be a given as the nominee, I think Biden would probably stay in, but that's not a given uh, and even a likelihood necessarily. But the other question is right: who else would step into his Mm. place and uh, be that Democrat? democratic standard bearer. I think when uh, Biden took office. he they hoped it would be Kamala Harris, but she is probably one person who polls even uh, consistently lower than than Biden these days. So it really would be an open field. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing for Democrats to have some new faces and names and options, but um, but it would be tough going for whoever that person is to go up against um, a Trump or a DeSantis or uh, probably many who the Republican Party is going to put up. I think it'll be a tough 2024 for the Democrats.
0: Shelby, what do you think? I mean if if we rule out, Biden and Harris. Does anybody else is is any is there are there any other obvious contenders? Do they, for example, decide to skip at least one generation and put someone of like roughly Pete Buttigieg's vintage up?
2: I mean, I would love to. I would love to hear this. I'm a millennial, you know. I think that uh, we haven't. It's, we've had difficulty getting behind Sleepy Joe Biden. You know, there's not massive amounts of enthusiasm, but at the same time, there's a huge risk in regards to not getting behind Biden, which I guess we could feel like we somewhat know. You know, the path. He's on and what he's Mm. going for. But at the same time, again, um, yeah, I just. They're all far too old.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, moving along finally and sticking with the subject of either former or to be former leaders, uh, most of us will at some point in our lives have done something so professionally and or personally foolish that we felt uncertain whether we could ever again face colleagues, friends or indeed the reflection in our mirror. And most of the mishaps and indiscretions performed by anyone listening to this will have been grand scheme of things. No great hill of beans, worse things happen at sea, etc. Most of us are not Liz Truss, who you may recall having been Prime Minister of the United Kingdom last year. A matter of months after imploding the UK's economy and getting slung out of 10 Downing Street by her own colleagues in just seven eventful weeks, she's back explaining that it was all everybody else's fault. Um, Shelby, first of all, on a scale of one to whatever, how interested are you in anything Liz Truss might have to say at this point?
2: I'm more interested in the lettuce opinion than Liz Truss' opinion. <laughs> um, but, yeah, that Does was... Does anyone
0: know what happened to that lettuce? Is it in a museum or something? I, <laughs> I, I, I should look into that.
2: Hopefully it's still... It's been <laughs> preserved. But, um, <laughs> yeah, that was Liz Truss defending her policy, saying that she was, quote, brought down by the left-wing left wing economic establishment. And, uh, in, quote,
0: in, in, in fairness to Liz Truss, she is entitled to the abashed journalist's defense of <laughs> I didn't write the headline where that's concerned. <laughs>
2: yes, and then she... Uh, Took uh, took fire at uh, Sunak for his corporate uh, tax increase, and that was in the Telegraph essay over the weekend. Um Sorry, I forgot your question. The lettuce, <laughs> the lettuce led me astray.
0: No, it was it was it was how, how enthralled are you, or indeed should anybody be, to hear from Liz Truss at this point?
2: I think it's pretty bad. I mean I just think for um uh, in regards to Sunak, like he's just being undermined by by her, by Bojo taking that little visit to Ukraine. Um so yeah, I I think it's she's she's just reappeared way too soon um we have a bit of ptsd from her time in <laughs> um,
0: julie the, the question of what a former prime minister should do has been a recurring one here in the united <laughs> kingdom for fairly obvious reasons uh in recent years because um if there are any english slash british massive history nerds listening to this who can correct me on this i would be genuinely delighted uh, to hear from them but I can't off the top of my head think that there would have been a time in which the prime minister of the day had three former prime ministers on their own back benches. <laughs> I mean, that, that's that got to be weird.
3: It has got to be very weird, yes. And I, I do think that's a bit unprecedented. And I, when I think of it from the US context, yeah, the idea that you would have uh, right, all the, the former presidents right there, like in the cabinet or in Congress or something like that, is just so laughable. So it is a bit unprecedented right now. But I,
0: you've, had, I, you've had one go to the Supreme Court.
3: Have we? OK. Taft. I think ah, I'm writing wow, Well insane. done. Well yeah. done. Um, but yes, usually I feel it's uh, kind of a, a going off into into the night somewhere. Um, I feel like uh, we, we do see some who cling on, though. I mean, I, in my Middle East work, I'm thinking like Netanyahu and people like who just like do not go away, even uh, when uh, when it seems like, like times are done for them. So I, I think maybe there's hope for her in this resurgence dream, but I don't see it happening anytime in the UK, anytime soon.
0: I mean, Shelby, it's clearly a, a hard thing to give up, uh, the power the state especially when you didn't even have it long enough to finish unpacking i mean that that would i mean i have no sympathy no one to blame but herself etc but do we see here a an argument which is I, i think implicit in that largely associated with american idea of term limits that like you get a certain period to be in charge of things and once you're done you're done you're not coming back
2: that would be, yeah, it would be great if that was uh, the case, but these people can't seem to stay away from the limelight. Uh, we were discussing that earlier. It's the same sort of case with, again, Trump or Bojo sort of not being, feeling like they haven't left. Um, they're still very much present and that these people are unable to uh, give up those positions of power once they've had a taste for it. And in her case, um, it was very, very brief. So she <laughs> she's hoping to maybe, uh, yeah, further her prospects.
0: But, but can we think of examples of people who have done something good with uh, being a, a an ex-leader. Because, Julie, the, the thing is, if you've been that person, uh, at least if you've been that person for longer than seven weeks, you, you do have, you have a gravitas, you have a cachet, you have a network. There are still ways you can make yourself useful if you are that way inclined. And I know the example everybody always cites, but it's a good example, is uh, President Jimmy Carter, who ironically, I think has been an exemplary ex-president, mm. though wasn't actually a very good president.
3: Oh, yeah, exactly. No, he goes down in history as the best ex-president we've ever had, I think. Um, so, yeah, I think he is the go-to. I was trying to think of other examples. I I think for presidents, it's hard. I mean, Obama is still doing his stuff, which I think mm. he'll continue doing. Um, but an example that came to mind was actually Vice President Al Gore, who I think kind of turned mm. um, a defeat into a, you know, a fairly um, noble pivot into putting climate change on a lot of people's radar. And I there's been some pushback to him for the way he did it. Um, I think that's one reason maybe why climate change is quite divisive in the U.S. is because it came from someone who was so democratic initially. But with that said, he, he put it on the radar in a way that it hadn't been before for many Americans uh, with that, um, that unexpected
0: loss uh, in 2000. Uh, Shelby, do you have a favourite ex-leader of any nationality at all?
2: I mean, I'm going with Obama because he's just sort of living his best life. Like, that's what I would want to be doing right now. He's just, you know, golfing. And uh, I mean, no, he's, he's doing lots of great other things as well. Um, but yeah, no, he, he seems to be doing retirement well.
0: He did speak up once or twice, though, Julie. And What do you think the rule should be about when you do intervene on actual political matters? Because it's always a, a weird judgment to make. There was a minor uproar uh On the occasions here in the United Kingdom, which uh, Sir John Major, the former Prime Minister, has popped up uh, explaining that, in in his measured view, Brexit is about the worst idea anybody has ever had.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think at least for American presidents, it's pretty much the tradition that you don't weigh in and you don't comment on the um, Mm. on on the the successor's um, business. And and I think Obama, considering who his uh, successor was with Trump, um, was was much more restrained than many in that position would have have been, and he did bite his tongue quite a bit. He, he has weighed in periodically, but um, has still, I would say, has, has pretty much kept that uh, tradition going as much as possible.
0: Uh, in, indeed so. I mean, it, it, it is a, it, it's a strange position they're in. And I, I think you, you've alluded to a couple of them already, Shelby, but the ones who've been notably bad ex-prime ministers or ex-presidents...
2: I, I don't want to keep repeating the same, you know, I, I, it's a bit monotonous here, but I mean, I'm just, I think Trump takes the cake, really, um, in regards to his very poor behavior and form. Um, but, uh, I don't know, passing it over to you, Julie, in your it, it,
0: I mean, I, I, I do think we do have to keep coming back to Boris Johnson, who is... Yeah. I mean, I think Liz Truss is at least vaguely pretending that she doesn't want her job back, whereas mm-hmm. Boris Johnson can't even be bothered pretending that he's not going to pounce at the earliest available exactly. opportunity. Well, on that uh, happy thought, <laughs> uh, Shelby Wilder and Julie Norman, thank you both for joining us. That is all for this edition of The Daily. Thanks also to Chris Chermack, who we heard in the middle of the show. Today's show was produced by Lillian Fawcett and researched by Andre Nikolai Pamanchuan. our sound engineer was Sarah Nichol. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily returns at the same time tomorrow.